0: AVXL episode 201 was recorded on April 25th, 2023. A trio of amps you can afford, speakers from Focal and Tad. YouTube TV is gunning for improved picture quality and an interesting question about firmware upgrades for your gear. All that and so much more coming up. Don't forget, email ask at avxl.com if you got a question for us. We'd love to hear from you. You can also tweet at Robert Heron or at Patrick Norton, at least while Twitter's still around. And thank you. Seriously, thank you. Thank you to everyone that supports us at patreon.com slash avxl. Testing, one, two, three. All right. I'm not blowing anything out. Ignorant weasels chewing on your soul. Ignorant weasels. Do you have speed? Yeah. Welcome You excel your guide to the best in home video and audio gear. No matter what your budget is, I'm Patrick Norton. Hey, I am Robert Heron. It's too early to report, but I'm experimenting with some of the settings inside of my projector to see if I can make those incredibly dark scenes in certain cinematic and television experiences that look like you're watching through the filter of mud at night. I'm looking at you, Game of Thrones. Um, to See if I can make them look better or at least brighter. What's your biggest this is interesting. complaint about
1: the picture right now? Like if you had one one or two things?
0: Well, I always want blacker blacks. Right. I want the OLED of uh, projection screens. Uh, I just don't have $400,000 or $10,000, <laughs> uh, uh, number one. Uh, number two, it has been interesting. I'm having a brain fart moment. I can't remember what I was watching, but I was watching something, and it was literally one of those moments where I'm looking at this, and I'm like, I know there's motion going on. I know there's people there, but boy, they made some decisions. And it's it's an aesthetic decision that a a lot of DPs are making uh, these days to shoot things in an incredibly dark manner, right? And I'm trying to see if there's some of the the settings inside my Epson, whether or not I can tweak some of those to make some of these incredibly dark scenes. Like, you know, for certain series, yeah, I'll go through and click a few things to see if I can actually see WTFs going on uh, rather than watching, you know, Dark brown, blackish things wrestling with each other. It's not a, it, and it's funny, right? Because it's not an issue where the blacks are being crushed. It's just literally an issue where they chose to shoot with very, very little light. It would be interesting for me to go through like in full blackout mode or at two in the morning versus with any sort of ambient light in the room and stuff like that. That's but it's key. Yeah, I agree. But and that's it's with also the
1: fifty-fifty that you're using for epson That's with the
0: fifty-fifty. Yeah.
1: So, that should have some pretty good contrast for what it is. Yeah. I also, it it is having content that you are very familiar with as well. Yeah. I was at a client's house the other day and we were testing the post calibration results using uh, some Marvel content from a streaming source. And I swear within this movie, from scene to scene, the black level was changing. It was like, oh, in this one scene, it was clearly crushed. And I was like, that looks kind of disappointing. Did I screw up? And then I swear to God, the very next scene, it was all back to normal. And I was like, okay, (laughs) Uh, the authoring of this content, I I, I couldn't believe it. I would think that with the money spent on the production of something like a Marvel movie, I I now want to buy this movie specifically maybe on on Blu-ray or 4K Ultra HD right uh, just to see these couple of scenes again to see if it differs significantly from what I was seeing uh, streamed from this client's house but anyway it was just a that would not be a piece of content I would use as a reference piece just because of how different one scene to the next was in terms of what the uh, absolute black level was in terms of either
0: crushing detail or not yeah i mean part of it's funny right because we talked about this uh with game of thrones a couple years ago where the cinematographer i think it was fabian wagner was was he did an interview with wired and he's like everything we wanted people to see is there right it was shot at night you know they wanted to this battle was supposed to be very different from the other battles it was literally shot to be dark you need a neutral monitor you need a large monitor credit to them for admitting that but yeah no it was definitely a choice um but that you was know, a very, it, very dark scene as yeah.
1: as intended by the artist. Yeah. Unless you were sitting in a pitch black room and your eyes were well dark adjusted, you are going to be missing most of whatever the hell's going on yeah. in that scene. And I could totally see how that would be frustrating for an average viewer.
0: Yeah. And, you know. and it's funny because do you remember Seven, the crazy movie from back in 1995? Is that the what's in the box?
1: What's in the yes. box? <laughs> <laughs>
0: for everybody who hasn't seen it don't worry that's not a spoiler oh. uh, for everybody who has seen it we're really sorry about the ptsd um, but it's funny right because that was that was variety did a great article talking about like why movies are getting so dark to or so dark on camera and the batman was one of the things that kind of started this discussion one of the people they interviewed in that was talking about how that was just, it was underexposed, it was very dark, and they were going for a very cinematic feel. I don't remember ever seeing that in the theater or at home and thinking like, wow, I can't see anything, but also they've kind of pushed the technology and the technique so far in the last couple of years. I hear you. It's interesting. In any case, uh, I'll put some links up and uh, to share that if you're interested in reading about it. Also, all I want to say is, you know, the only thing more frustrating than shopping for speakers is, is shopping for car stereo speakers, <laughs> <laughs> like man, it's just it's been you know a lot of frequency responses with, of course, no plus or minus dB on the frequency range. I'm you know because in this particular application for my wife's Volvo, I need a couple of four-inch speakers to put in the front because I don't really feel like sawing into the the door frames. And uh, right. but I was laughing like in one case they were talking about this four inches, hundred and five millimeter speaker, and they're claiming you know sixty hertz. Uh, At the low end. And, you know, I got to be honest with you, like a Genelec powered monitor that is the pinnacle of thoughtful engineering. That's going to be like down 5 or 6 dB at 55 or 60 hertz compared to the the level. You know, that's a that's a legit 60 hertz. I doubt that uh, inexpensive car stereo, four inch car stereo speakers jamming out (laughs) decent bass. It'll be. be interesting. There's it's funny, like on one hand, like car stereo speaker engineering or speaker engineering in general right but i'm noticing like there's much larger magnets there's the possibility for a, a much deeper x max i.e. the forward and rear movement of the woofer which is one way to get Higher volumes at lower frequencies, which is something I really started becoming aware of with with some of Sonos designs a few years ago, um, and they've been doing that with you know subwoofers and 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 woofers. But I'm 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 I will say some of the vendors are much less fantasy or ideal, you know, frictionless physics universe based in their numbers, and that does has me leaning in their direction. Somebody who's claiming their woofers hitting you know seventy or ninety. Hertz it sounds much more legitimate than 50 or 60 hertz out of a. Did I mention four inch, 105 millimeter woofer? <laughs> hey man, this makes me want to visit the Crutchfield
1: website. The other thing I see popping up related to car audio is audio calibration for vehicles. Some of the popular room audio correction technologies that I see for home theater actually tend to, if you go on their websites, they'll also have an automobile section where I'm finding more and more products and more and more, well, currently with some of the high-end vehicles, uh, and I'll get into this in a little bit, but some are actually offering compatibility with some of these room audio or car audio correction technologies where you can optimize the listening environment within vehicles now uh, on a more consistent and regular basis than I've ever seen at any point previous to this. So that's something else I'll... I'll be keeping an eye on going forward. And if anybody has experience with this, uh, either your own vehicle or a product you've added to your vehicle aftermarket-wise that enabled this kind of functionality, uh, please let me know. Uh, Shoot us an email, ask at avxl.com, or shoot me a direct...
0: Audio control. Okay. Audio Control Talk. I met, I met the, the the current president of audio control at CES several years ago. You know, it was one of those late, like, 4.30 wandering around the show floors. Right. And he's like, you want to hear a demo? And I'm like, honestly, hell yes. And a lot of what they were doing was correcting um, you, to basically doing timing correction so that the speakers in the rear of the vehicle and the front of the vehicle were all kind of working in sync for the sweet spot but they do some crazy stuff now where oh gosh where you can actually correct they've got like you know full EQ that you can run into these and modify it you know the delay gain EQing um you know across like i don't know 6 8 input channels maybe 10 output channels it's pretty crazy stuff i'm always
1: um, listening to music in my car and it would be it yeah. would be one environment where i definitely would like some additional calibration capabilities and that's something i'll actually pay attention to and look for in any future vehicle purchases that mm-hmm. i'm uh, going at at least seeing if the hardware is available and it's something i kind of want to experiment with with my calibration yeah. gear so I- i'm good to go i just need to find the uh, appropriate hardware to work on <laughs> <laughs>
0: and I'm putting the word yeah, there's out. There's some crazy. Yeah, there's 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 some crazy. Yeah, it's pretty impressive how much EQ they can put on stuff and how much how sophisticated car audio is. I'm sure there's a bunch of car audio guys in the audience right now going like glad you caught up guys. <laughs> exactly. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, what's going on with, uh, with YouTube TV? Are they trying to, are they, are they tired of people complaining about now that the price has gone up and it's no longer like 40 bucks a month and people are whining that, you know, they're getting close to cable TV, which looks better. I mean, what's, what's the story here?
1: Yeah. Uh, at least according to the Reddit, the subreddit for YouTube TV, one of their representatives actually posted an April update. And they mentioned that coming this summer and currently they are testing higher bit rates and improved transcoding, Uh, quote unquote, picture quality experiments. We are testing transcoding changes, including a bit rate increase for live 1080p content over the next several weeks. These will target devices that support the VP9 codec with high speed internet connections. If these go well, we plan to make them permanent by this summer. More info to come. So it's just a quick heads up. If If you've tried YouTube TV and you've found the overall quality compared to maybe some other sources, be it over the air or your cable or satellite Mm -hmm. service, uh, to be lacking, Uh, they are aware of this. And they are actually working to make it as good as possible for what they can provide via the streaming internet. And like they mentioned, this will target VP9-capable devices first and moving forward. I'm trying to think of what I have available to me that doesn't support VP9 but anyway, uh, I'm, I'm sure this is just a first step in terms of other things coming. <laughs> I'll put a link to the Reddit page where they posted this comment. The Verge also had an article mentioning this as well, uh, basically reiterating the same information. But it's just to let you know that, yeah, YouTube TV is, is much like uh, I could think of, say, Netflix in terms of, looking at their own content and saying, you know what, we can either do this better with lower bit rates or we can make tweaks to the codecs and make everything look better for more people. And yeah, more info to come, coming this summer.
0: We wait with bated breath. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. So there's been a lot of amplifier announcements in the last uh, few weeks. It's almost like supply chain issues are easing, though one of the craziest new amps that's out there uh, from Hypex. They make uh, amplifier modules that are used in a lot of high-end audio equipment they also do a bunch of diy stuff um, their NeLi 500 diy which is a 500 watt mono block, which i think it measures i think the cyanide measurement on that is between 100 and 110 decibels which is to say it is far beyond there is no noise you will hear as a human if you're a bat you might hear some noise those are out of stock till may or june you know if you need that kind of power uh you know, high magnaplanar people. Um, <laughs> a kit with the Neelai 500 DIY and the PS500 DIY power supply and a case that's going to run you about $1,000, um, which is pretty epic considering what that kind of performance is going to cost, you know, as a non-DIY product. I will also, I'm going to talk about some amps here. Uh, these are all, you know, well, let's talk about, first of all, Fosse Audio's new BT-20A Pro. Fosse is a brand a lot of people know from Amazon. They make some really, really good stuff. And I was kind of blown away by uh, Audio Science Review's measurements on the new Fosse Audio BT-20A Pro. That Pro is muy importante uh, because the name is really similar to Foss's bt28, which has been around for a while. this is a much more powerful amplifier. Both amps, they work with an external laptop style switching power supply. The BT28 pro, the cyanide measurement on that is solid, 83 Db. it's as good as most high quality AV receivers and this is crazy. 146 watts into a four ohm load, both channels driven 1% THD. That is a lot of power for 116 bucks. That's with the 48 volt power supply. If you go down to the 32 volt power supply, it'll save you 15 or 16 bucks, but you cut the max power down to 70 watts at 4 ohms. Running an 8 ohm speaker load, it's 100 watts with 48 volt power supply, 40 watts in the 32 volt version. Um, so that that 32 to 48 volt. Bump gives you a heck of a lot more power. It's also going to generate more heat, may impact the overall longevity of it, but judging from the interior sort of breakdown drawings on Fosse's website, it looks like they took the time to put a great big fat heat sink inside of the amplifier, which is smart so the bt28 pro it's also got uh, bluetooth 5.0 it's got bass and treble knobs if you're into that and it's fairly flat actually it is flat i think it drops down like 0.5 db at the you know bat end of the hearing range to the super high end 15k plus hertz but uh um It's, you know, you can basically tweak the bass and treble. They put detents that actually work in there. If you don't want to adjust the bass or treble, passive outputs along with the power outputs, and you can swap the op amps inside of it if you want between like a classic OPA-2134, OPA-2604, and a Muse SO2. You know, if you're into rolling op amps because you think you're going to hear the mad difference like rolling tubes, it's there for you, and they have orange and gray knobs. Fosse Audio's uh, BT-20, which has been around for a while, that was built around Texas Instruments TPA-3116. That's a Class D chip amplifier. The Pro uses a TI TPA-3255. You know, Rob and I had our Class D amplifier Epiphanal experience, uh, gosh, a long time ago at CES. One of their engineers was there. He had one of their dev boards. And it was flawless, right? And these are relatively inexpensive devices. And if they're engineered properly, they have very, very good performance. Um, So shout out to Fosse. They've got a pretty good rep in terms of of build quality. 30-day returns. There's an 18-month warranty, at least through FosseAudioShop.com, which is Fosse's website for selling direct. Uh, You can also buy these on Amazon. But I don't think they have the 48-volt power supply version up there yet.
1: Would you consider these uh, like a good option for somebody who has an AVR where you need a couple extra channels of amplification? Uh, maybe you it's had that, like, worth... 13 channels of processing, but you only have like right. 11 channels of amplification. And I just need like a couple more for some speakers I'm adding in the room. Is this the kind of product you should consider? Is it in that realm or is it I certainly applicable? think
0: about it. Yeah. Um, okay. You know, I mean, given the, you know, one, I, here's the thing, right? Like, you know, I'm like, depending on what day of the week it is, I'm 90, 10, 70, 30 on, on what people call Chai Fi amps. These are, you know, essentially most of these are Chinese manufacturers. They may or may not have domestic offices. Their services support may or may not be good or bad. It varies a lot from manufacturer. Somebody like Topping has a much more sort of, Topping, for example, has a much higher profile than, say, G. at least in my world. I'm also a little down on G because I bought one of their inexpensive amps uh, after a recommendation from somebody. Study. and the performance was great but 30 percent of the volume knob curb no. introduced so much noise it was fundamentally unusable right. and when i mentioned that to lox g's tech support they're like oh which inputs are you using and i said rca and then they ghosted me um so you know you've discovered uh, the flaw well the uncorrectable yeah, flaw the uncorrectable flaw um sir but, go away uh, never you know, contact us again well and then that's why that's why maybe you know that's why making sure that the place you buy from has good service and support or if you buy from Amazon their return policy is pretty generous um I'm still waiting to hear what Topping is doing about their PA5 amplifier that was that crazy price performance breakthrough they came out with last year that had some issues which appear to be heat-related. They're supposedly working on a new version of the PA-5. Haven't heard anything about that yet. But they have announced uh, the topping PA-7 and PA-7 Plus, which sell for 450 or $550. Um, Audio science reviews measured as about 102 dB, which is pretty phenomenal. Uh, 90 dB, again, is beyond—90 dB cyanide is beyond, you know, human hearing. The PA-5 is 106 dB. You are not going to hear the difference, between 102 and 106 dB, and it's sure as hell not if it's a blind test. Uh, people might think that. People might want 127,000 dB, but people want a lot of things. 191 watts into 4 ohms, both channels driven, 107 watts into 8 ohms. Uh, XLR and RCA inputs, it's got a 12-volt trigger. Better performance than uh, that Fosse audio box. Is it worth several hundred dollars more? That's a really interesting question. It's certainly, you know, a bit more powerful, and it's certainly quieter. But, again, by 90 dB, you're beyond, you know, 90 dB and above should be beyond human hearing. At 83 dB, I I don't think anybody's going to hear much of a difference between 70, 80, 90, and 100 dB Cynad on an amplifier. Or a DAC for that matter. Feel free to send slings and arrows my way, ask at avxl.com. Topping also released, by the way, an updated LA ninety. Um, it's the same crazy chart topping, 120 dB sine measurements. Same CNC milled aluminum case, but this time they built it out of discrete components instead of a chip amp. Um, you know, this is a this is a box that can deliver like 70 watts into a 4 ohm load. Um, I want to say 41 watts into an 8-ohm load was ASR's measurements. You can bridge it as a mono block and get 270, 280 watts into 4 ohms, which is pretty phenomenal. That is a huge amount of power to deliver. I got to give a shout-out. Amir put a note at the end of this one because he was just gushing at the performance of this amplifier. And it's got ridiculous measurements. You know, it's super impressive. You know, it's like an $800 amplifier, but... This is pretty powerful. You know, there's other companies who would put this in a bigger enclosure and charge you $8,000 for it. I really like Amir's note on this one. P.S. Power amplifiers are least reliable audio products due to high currents and voltages involved. New designs sometimes need to prove themselves in this regard. So, if you are risk averse, please don't be the first to purchase this amplifier. Um, solid advice, you know, and something to think about. You know, when you buy a $10,000 amplifier or even a $1,000 amplifier, you're probably expecting the company be, to be around to repair it in the future. Whether or not it is repairable at the $1,000 end is debatable, uh, certainly from the companies you're buying from. They might be like, mm. <laughs> But, you know, you can also kind of assume that they have things like, you know, underwriter's laboratory certification or that they're going to be around in a few years. You know, with some of the smaller companies, it gets a little more hairball. I think saw solid. I think Topping's solid. It's interesting to kind of look at uh, the crazy performance that's coming out on some of this stuff. You know, it's nice to see people build— these amplifiers based on TI's chip amps and to do it with really phenomenal performance. Because there's a lot of them out there where they have TI's chip, which has all of this potential, but somehow they managed to you know, promise 300 watts per channel and deliver like eight and have it to be like a noisy eight at that. I'm right. exaggerating slightly, but there's some really crappy designs around these TI chips. These are not crappy designs we're talking about here.
1: Perfect. Love it. Yeah, me too. (laughs) I like having options, and there are several good ones now, all using that impressive TI
0: tech. Bring it on. Go TI. Heck yeah. Uh, More updates on Sony's A95K QD OLED television, this time with calibration. Yeah,
1: I actually had the opportunity (laughs) to to spend a quality afternoon working on one of these beautiful 2022 TVs, I came away just realizing why that TV was so well-regarded for the 2022 lineup. And coming up for 2023, we'll see what the A95L brings to the table. But this is Sony's Quantum Dot OLED television technology uh, based upon the Samsung panel, Samsung display panel. I have to say, just working on it, the TV felt zippier. It seemed to have a stronger processor compared to, say, like the A90J that I had looked at previously or an A80J for that matter. Uh, That made it really nice in terms of just performance, in terms of navigating menus to just grinding through it, getting the best picture quality possible out of that TV. Uh, It is based upon Google TV, and that ended up being kind of a pain in the ass for me just in terms of... I needed to access the play store on this particular television for loading up a particular piece of software, uh, for my calibration. And in order to do that, you had to have an account already there. So I ended up literally just using a throwaway account, as the owner of this TV had never used the built-in apps, nor had even ever logged in through the Google TV interface. Now, on this TV, you could still do the network updates, or basically access Sony servers for uh, obtaining updates for the TV and keeping it updated for its firmware internally. But if you needed to actually load a single app from the Google Play Store, yeah, you need an account and you actually need to log in to do that. And otherwise, eh, whatever. Also, a friendly reminder, uh, and it was the case for this particular television as well that I was looking at, almost all television wall mounts provide a post-installation leveling feature. So if you've got it all installed and you did your best to make sure the bracket was mounted parallel to the wall or flush to the wall or square to the whole scenario, and when you hung the TV on there, it was slightly crooked, there is almost always a feature somewhere to enable a way of just slightly tweaking it to make it look just perfect. And keep that in mind. This was actually using one of the mantle mount wall mount systems that allows it, say, if it's uh, hung above a fireplace, you can then bring it down to a lower level, like in front of the fireplace. And when we did that, we were actually taking a look at it and it was a little crooked and uh, the significant other in the household was most perturbed by that considering how much they had spent on this TV and it was something they wanted fixed and I uh, spent five minutes looking through the documentation for this particular wall mount system and it isn't as easy as I've seen on some other wall mount brackets, but it was there and it could be done and it just required loosening a couple of screws, putting the level on the screen, and then tightening them up when appropriate and getting everything nice and, nice and pretty. But yeah, uh, A95K, if it's still available... It's probably at a good price at this point, considering it's the the flagship 2022 OLED from Sony. Fantastic. Bright, punchy, beautiful looking, calibrates wonderfully. Uh, No complaints whatsoever. Nice. Although, personally, I would probably still plug something like a Roku into it or an Apple TV, as this client (laughs) was prone to doing as well, uh, rather than using the built-in Google TV stuff.
0: Uh, Either way. I have no issue with that.
1: Yeah, it's there. It's there. And it's, damn, that's a pretty screen. No complaints.
0: And it's not outrageously priced, right? I mean, you're looking at 2800 Wow. Is that the right one? Yeah, Bravia XR65-inch, A95K. That's uh, the 2022 version. Okay.
1: That's what's available <laughs> right now. The 2023, I don't believe, okay. is out yet. So, so that's exactly what I was working on. And I haven't looked so up what the down. price of it is.
0: <laughs> it, <laughs> it is Direct from Sony... They've dropped from thirty five hundred to twenty eight hundred on the sixty five inch version, and twenty eight hundred to twenty five hundred on the fifty five inch version. So spendy for a television in twenty twenty three, but not eye bleedingly spendy. Nope. So. And that is
1: still a flagship screen. True that. If you can get that at a good deal, I wouldn't be hesitant to purchase it instead of, say, waiting for something like the A ninety five L to arrive and, and to take hmm. that and go forward. I mean. It's always best to buy the latest and greatest if you can, but right. if there's savings to be had, that is just a wonderful screen. It looked good with all content we threw at it, and
0: <laughs> it's a Sony.
1: It has a lot going for it, just in that respect, in terms of... Uh, True that. I, I believe they're using a heatsink layer technology within that screen itself, which, in my opinion, it actually helps with things like HDR playback and minimizing the wear and tear on a screen like that and giving it better longevity over the years of use. That is a screen I would expect to have for many years of of flawless
0: use uh, without compromise, so to speak. True that. Uh, one of the announcements that came out around Expona was Focal's new affordable line of speakers, the Theva, which replaces the Cora at the entry level of their lineup. These are actually made in France, which is fascinating, given that most of the time when you have an entry level speaker from a famous speaker manufacturer, it's made in China. These are, again, made in France. The Theva number one, that's a bookshelf speaker. They start at $1,000 a pair. They've got three floor standers the number two, the number three, and the number 3D. Uh, that 3D adds Atmos upfiring speakers. Those are about $3,000 a pair. Uh, the number two and the number three, I believe, are 20, or $1,800 and 2400 a pair. There's a center channel, they have surround channels. Uh, Similar to the core line it's replacing. These have TNF tweeters. And one of the things I find fascinating about Focal is the, you know, things they do with the materials that go into the drivers. Um, TNF is an inverted dome aluminum magnesium tweeter, not too exotic at this point, but it's got a surround made of poron which is a material with shape memory that came out of their utopia beryllium tweeter engineering, quote, making it possible to reduce distortion by a factor of three in the two to 3,000 kilohertz range where the human ear has great sensitivity. I don't know if I can hear it, but I love reading about this stuff. Uh, they also do something cool with the slate fiber cones they use in these in their uh, Alpha Pro Monitor series. It's uh, recycled non woven or matted carbon fibers and, uh, you know, they're pretty slick. It's a really interesting use of material. I have a feeling like they had fiber left over from some other driver production and it became essentially uh, used rather than disposed of. And, uh, you know, so essentially non woven carbon fibers, a thermoplastic polymer, which basically means they glue the fibers together to make this super rigid cone. Uh, They orient them all in the same direction, so they get a superior bonding and superior uh, rigidity. So it's interesting uh, to watch experiments with new materials to make drivers out of, especially since, quite frankly, people can figure out a way to make paper perform better in woofers.
1: I'm curious. That sounds like the material would last a very long time in terms of its toughness overall. With the gasket, is it... I don't even know if this is even worth bringing up.
0: Well, so it's funny, right? I've got some 50-odd-year-old Klipsch speakers that I hang around for. They have a particular sound I associate with live events uh, in New York City in the 80s and 90s. And occasionally I want to hear the punk through the horns and the Klipsch speakers I have, the heresies I have, are perfect for that. They are not a refined speaker by any uh, sense of the word. But I mention that because when you look at Old speakers, this, you know, traditional rubber surrounds the thing that holds the speaker cone to the, to the spider or the frame right. are what disintegrate over time. And you can replace those. Um, you can you know, essentially re-foam or re-replace the material. I prefer to have someone else do it. You can do it DIY. I find it to be one of those things where I end up with a lot of glue on myself, a lot of glue on the speaker, uh, and maybe I'm angry at the way it looks. Uh, but it is, it is fairly inexpensive to be done. and There's places all over the country that do it, all over the world, I'm sure, that do it. But the actual cones themselves, I mean, sometimes they disintegrate over time you know it's worse with say car stereo speakers where there's a lot of sunshine compared to home speakers but it's amazing because i've i've seen speakers that are 20 30 40 years old where people have replaced the foam or the the rubber surrounds that have disintegrated with a modern material and essentially they're good to go forever i don't know how long the new materials are but essentially the the newer materials they use for the surrounds uh have a a a half-life of longer than you or i certainly okay
1: that's good to know i uh, I would hope that that particular part of the speaker design is kept up with the, the cone itself that sounds i mean every every other announcement i see it's like something related to like how stiff or tough these new cones are. And I'm thinking, well, what about the part that surrounds it? And I know that there's probably a lot of it needs to be mechanically light, in a sense, where it can allow the movement as as seamlessly as possible and as quickly as possible. But at the same time, it's it's just nice to know. I'd like to have them actually mention that once. It's like, hey, in addition to having the most badass cone materials possible, we've also taken care to make sure that we're keeping up with the surrounds or the gasket or the. The foam slash rubber, that it too it's, will last uh, a good long time. And it sounds like they Pretty will, much. So.
0: I, I want to say any speaker made in the last 20 plus years is probably the, the surround is probably made out of material that's going to last forever. Right? And it's, it. it's interesting because, you know, you run into places... That think the surround material is super critical to the engineering of their driver. There are places where you know they they don't really mention it. It's just the material that kind of holds the driver or the cone in place inside of the spider. Re-foaming, I guess, is really the right name for it uh, for when you're replacing new surrounds. You know, and it's right because it 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 supports and it aligns or centers the driver the cone inside of the speaker frame and it also provides dampening support in that so you know if you put the wrong material in there you can screw up the sound of the speaker um but again there's a there's a lot of places that offer the service or that offer you the parts to do it yourself um you know if you're good at certain types of diy it's probably a natural this is one of those things you know refoaming speakers where i want to to hand it over to someone who does it a lot. Understood. That just has to do with my relationship to glue.
1: <laughs> it was always something I've been curious about. And it yeah. figures It figures that the that, that foam slash rubber technology has kept up with the rest of it as well. It's yeah. just something I've always wondered.
0: I always laugh because I feel like there are parallels between the fibers used for incredibly competitive sailboats, racing sailboats, and the fibers that are put in the cones of speakers as things get more and more sophisticated and technically advanced. But again, there's a lot of speakers out there that are still using relatively... You know, unsophisticated paper cones that sound really good. So, but again, the lighter the material is, and the stiffer the material is, the less it's going to deform as you do that crazy. You know, because you're you're essentially you know if you can imagine being in a in a car, you know, in Mom's '83 Buick with a set of jank tires on it, big fat ones that are you know not quite aired up accelerating and stopping and accelerating and stopping because right when the woofer or the tweeter it is essentially going forward and then you know accelerating forward decelerating going all the way back to the far end of its x range and decelerating and then reversing direction right so literally imagine like accelerating the car as hard as you can slamming on the brakes putting it in reverse and then jamming it the other direction Um, and that's literally what you're doing with a speaker cone. think about the difference between that with mom's jank Buick versus a Formula One car. You know what I mean? You can, right. you know, with the Formula One car because it's stiffer and lighter and has more power because it's got bigger coils and magnets. You can accelerate it and decelerate it faster.
1: I'm just thinking so. holistically about speaker design. That was just a, <laughs> something that was been in the back of my head for a little while, and I'm, I'm glad to have. Well, some, I'm with uh, you. <laughs> have some thoughts
0: on it. Well, speaking of Formula One and cost is no object design, uh, Tad. Uh, the Japanese speaker company has been previewing the TAD CE1 TX. I was hoping to hear that at Expona. I couldn't go up to Expona, but uh, it is a you know concentric mid tweeter that runs from 250 hertz to pretty much beyond human hearing. They've got beryllium tweeter behind that mid uh, that midwoofer, uh, and they're porting it via a pair of slits in the side panels. They call it bidirectional aerodynamic slot or ADS ports. Five liter aramid woven and non woven fabric in the cone of the midwoofer and woofer i believe not the most efficient speaker on the planet 85 db at one watt one meter they're claiming 35 hertz to 100,000 kilohertz i don't care about anything above 20k because i can't hear it because i'm not a bat um, but they're you know they also give you no plus or minus db on that i'm not holding my breath that a stand mount with an 18 centimeter that's a seven inch woofer is going to be satisfying at 34 hertz but i it'll be pretty epic from 50 or 60 hertz on up um you know for $32,000 a pair and $2,500 for the factory stands it should be pretty epic um Tad's kind of like Magico they're one of those companies that they set an extraordinarily high bar with extraordinarily flawless products uh Tad's done some incredible stuff in the past it's one of the places Andrew Jones made his rep before he started making uh, more affordable speakers definitely looking forward to hearing these in the field at some point. And if they can hit 34, you know, fairly flat, up to 20,000 hertz props to them, I still can't afford them, but I will enjoy listening to them, I'm sure. Desirable.
1: (laughs) Definitely desirable. Hey, Speaking of audio, I managed to experience my first Dirac Live calibration this week using uh, basically Dirac's live software package for a Windows computer. It's also available for Mac, and it might even be available for Linux as well. This was on a newer Denon X3800H Mm. AVR, and overall, I would say the process went very smoothly. However, there were some software quirks related to the initial connection. Actually, the resulting message that the AVR was displaying, or the software was displaying, due to the inability to make the initial connection, was uh, it needed to be looked at. There were some typos and just missing words within the actual message itself, which... It was very unhelpful in terms of actually troubleshooting it. Uh, quick tip, if you run into an initial connection issue linking your computer to the AVR, we just simply did a force restart of the AVR by holding down the power button for five seconds. And that got it to finally link up. Oh, it also required doing a manual IP connection as well. But with those two things, we were able to get right in. We were using the full bandwidth license that covers you from 20 to 20,000 hertz. That's three hundred and fifty dollars currently per AVR. As far as I know, you can't transfer this or use it anywhere else except for the particular AVR you're purchasing yeah. for. If you want to do Focus more on the lower end frequencies, the the base frequencies from 20 to 500 Hertz. That license is $260 with a nice $100 upgrade if eventually you wanna go full bandwidth on it. I performed the 17 location or position measurement. That was good for a room with say a larger couch or more than just a single seat effectively. That actually worked really well in terms of just grinding through it. It didn't take nearly as long as I thought it would. It was effective. What I appreciated the most was post-calibration. Once you're done with that, you can actually work on the curve itself. It does something like a Harmon curve, in essence, mm-hmm. by default. And if perhaps maybe you find that the base is too low or too high, you can actually tweak that curve a little bit within that before you upload it. Or you can create multiple presets, in essence, with uh, the default curve or your custom tweaked curve, so to speak. And for that, I really thought it was really nice uh, in terms of just the the customization, in terms of how it's going to sound afterwards. One difference between this, I would say, and something like Odyssey that I noticed right off the bat was that Odyssey actually goes through the setup a little more... Uh, hand holding, in a sense, uh, mm-hmm. whereas it will go through each speaker, check its connections, uh, check the levels, and make sure everything is kind of where it needs to be before actually going through the calibration. Dirac, on the other hand, it requires you to set some of the initial levels and get everything kind of like at a neutral or at a at a consistent level with all of the speakers before you start. That is one thing about Odyssey that I kind of do appreciate. It does at least a basic quick check on the wiring itself mm-hmm. to make sure you're not out of phase or something wonky before you even get started. And Dirac kind of assumes you've got all that sort of covered before you get going on it. Otherwise, I found the experience to be quite nice. It was easy to do, relatively speaking. 17 positions and locations is a lot to handle, but... Uh, yeah, You definitely want to use a tripod with something to hold that microphone in those various positions so you can be pretty consistent with the positioning like above your head or below your head, moving that around the room, so to speak. In the end, uh, the, the result sounded fantastic, actually. We ended up uh, trying it at various volume levels afterwards, and it just brought smiles, smiles all around. I think it is a nice. good piece of software overall, even though it's kind of up to you to decide if spending an extra 350 bucks up to $350 yeah for a particular avr is worth it and it does require a usb calibration microphone you cannot use mm-hmm. the microphone that comes with your avr usually that is designed to be used with odyssey systems that are out there or whatever other right. built-in uh, supported microphone technology is is available in your avr
0: so it's kind of crazy right i've got a 3700h so i am not eligible i cannot upgrade to the dirac live on my particular AVR. But when you look at this, right, you're talking $349, 259 if you wanna do the low end correction on that, plus close to $100 for the microphone, right? True. This is a $400 upgrade for a $1,600 AVR. That
1: seems spendy. It is definitely an investment. And this assumes that you would also use this with a capable True. tripod to allow that movement also, at least according to Dirac, they would prefer you not be in the room at all when it's actually taking the measurements. So there's one oh, great wow. thing about the software itself. It gave you a timer. You could do like 5 or 10 or 15 seconds <laughs> to give you time to walk out of the room, let it do the measurements, and then you can come back in as soon as it's finished. Another thing, too, if you're doing these kind of measurements, be aware that these sounds can be quite loud. And it is it will disturb an animal, like your, your pets. You yeah. may want to wear hearing protection. Even if you're in the room next door, uh, it is just something to be aware of that, yeah, you can generate some pretty loud sounds with the pulse frequencies and things like that that are being uh, pushed through the speakers to perform these calculations and measurements. So uh, keep that in mind, but no but.
0: Good to know. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a, as you say, it's a $1,700 uh, MSRP and pretty much sales price on the 3800H, uh, but it's... It's interesting. Also, where is the microphone sold these days? Because they don't seem to be selling it on Dirac's account, just the licenses on Dirac's website. There
1: are a couple of options for that. It is a pretty standardized USB microphone. Okay. You want one, definitely, that includes a calibration file for it. Ideally, it would be the one that also incorporates a a quote-unquote 90-degree calibration file, which effectively means you're pointing, pointing the microphone straight up. Dayton Audio makes one.
0: They're talking about the Mini DSP USB Mic 1. Yes. There are a
1: couple of mics out there that will definitely work with it. Effectively, any decent USB-based calibration mic uh, will work with this, provided you also have that calibration file as well, which most do include that. And that's something I would say. This also ran into an oddity I was kind of unaware of in terms of if you are a MacBook user. And I did not realize this, but there is no USB-A port on at least the Macs I've seen recently. (laughs) And most of these microphones include just a USB-A cable on the end that you would plug into a computer. So... Keep that in mind if USA you're USA to US- USB A to USB C adapter. There's one
0: on my desk right now. I,
1: I was like, what are you supposed to do in this scenario? And then yes, exactly. I'm actually gonna throw one of those in my bag just to have Uh, Just in case uh, the client themselves want to run the software locally on their own computer, I was able to take the work files once finished on a Windows system and then send those to a MacBook and have them be able to load that up. So if they wanted to go through later and change that curve at all, they could. And that's just something to keep in mind as well. But then it was also, oh, hey, I have this file on a USB thumb drive. And guess what? I can't use that either with a MacBook. And it was like, I'm just going to have one of those USB-A to USB-C converters just sitting in my bag. It's just, It was too funny, in, in essence, <laughs> of having to deal with uh, uh, just a simple hmm. connection like that. And I was kind of surprised, actually, that you would need something like that. But I, I don't know. It's an Apple thing. I'm not complaining about it. I just found it to be a a unique quirk in the hardware.
0: (laughs) There's, I mean, there's a lot of love coming out for this one. Um, I think it was like Audioholics had some great things to say about it. And uh, there's some interesting articles online where people are, are comparing direct live versus using their own sort of, you know, manual correction. Totally. It definitely saves a lot of work.
1: Oh, and just to be very clear, this does not take away from the need of speaker positioning within the room, making sure that's as good as possible before you start, uh, mm. uh, making sure that your wiring is correct, that nothing is you know out of phase, so to speak. All of that still applies, no matter what you're doing um, in terms of... Right getting it all as good as possible before you even go down the road with a tool like this, or even Odyssey, or anybody's tool for that matter. You want it sounding as good as possible before you enable any of this. And of course, you want to be running the latest and greatest firmware and direct live version on your particular computer. That is probably my other complaint. And I, I tweeted this out earlier this week about how on Dirac's website, if you click the latest button for the software, it doesn't give you the latest version. It gives you a couple of versions back. They claim that the device will report what it is capable of and the software will take advantage of it appropriately. However, between that one quirky error message, which was no help whatsoever, and the fact that if you click latest, it didn't give you the absolute latest version of the software. Those were just two things I think should be updated. In addition to maybe offering something like an auto update function within the software itself, pretty minor complaints, all things that can be easily addressed going forward. But just things to keep in mind if you are actually
0: going to go down this route and play with the play with the tool, so to speak. Interesting stuff. Yeah, it's – well, it's not something I'm going to be upgrading to anytime soon, so (laughs) I'm going to put that away for reference. On a future receiver purchase.
1: And there is an option actually in the setup for this where you could plug the microphone into the AVR or you could plug the microphone into the computer. And depending on how far away you are from the AVR, it generally is going to be easier to have that microphone plugged into the related computer with the software. Just so you have that, unless you're dealing with a very long extension or powered extension for a USB cable, you generally are going to be plugging this microphone into the computer itself and not directly right. into the AVR. But that is an option if you have a long enough USB cable and it works for your particular room environment.
0: We've been known to nerd out on this a little bit. All right, people. Hey, let's take a moment to thank all of our patrons before we move on to the viewer questions in this show. Uh, we started a while back to thank all of our patrons in order from the original subscribers on patreon.com slash We are up to March 26, 2018. Wayne Jetsky, Stephen Poirier... Guntis Glynov's Paul Brothers, Damon Michener, and Graham McLuhan. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for your support of AVXL. Over the last few years, we appreciate it, and we appreciate you. And if you're curious to have the Patreon experience, head over to patreon.com slash AVXL. And uh, we should be having a hangout later this week. I'm going to be hanging out. Rob's going to be editing like mad this week, but we'll be doing another one in May, so keep hosted. Indeed. Uh, James. By the way, speaking of posting and Patreon.com, James posted on Patreon.com slash AVXL. Regarding firmware, I've never updated the firmware on my AVR TV. Heck, I've never even hooked the TV up to a network as I don't use the smart features. Do I need to export or take pictures of my settings? Do I need to rerun the audio calibration? LG removing features from the service menu is one reason I've never updated the firmware. If it ain't broke, don't fix it being the other reason. Uh, I can relate to the ain't broke, don't fix it uh, aspect. Uh, you know, things have gotten... It used to be back in the day that, that upgrading firmware, or an ex, uh, for example, on a computer motherboard was a taking your life into your hands kind of experience because sometimes it worked and sometimes you ended up breaking a motherboard. <laughs> that was a long time ago. Firmware is pretty stable. Uh, and and certainly in terms of computers, there are performance and or security aspects to it that maybe are less intense than they are in your avr or tv although i think the idea of being hacked by your tv or your avr or your smart light bulbs i won't use the word funny but it is kind of amusing to contemplate certainly people have hacked into flaws in printers and large corporations
1: oh and that said there was a particular <laughs> government agency that had a right. method of getting into a particular tv that had a microphone and or camera built into it yeah. i'm not going to get into that but I'm at the other extreme where, man, if there's a new piece of software for my particular piece of gear, I am, right. um, I am prone to install it every single time. Uh, for AVRs and TVs, it's generally a fix or it's an addition of a feature that was supposed to be there when the product right. shipped and isn't there yet. And I could think of Sony TVs and their support for and particular game modes on those TVs as not being fully fleshed out when they first launched, but then a couple months down the road, boom, there it is. In the case of LG, where they are quote-unquote removing features from the service menu, they haven't actually done that. They are saying that maybe, in in the case of the 2023 LG OLEDs, Mm -hmm. there is an item within the service menu that has been no longer exposed as easily that most people will never have to experience or mess with anyway. As far as I know, that particular feature that they're talking about related to auto-dimming and the protection functionality of the panel itself is still available if need be within the pro environments. And I'd like to see exactly what they mean by that, that I have not looked into personally, but I am a big fan of running all of the updates for my particular TV and my OLED as well. LG has often made adjustments. Or better rounded out features. I keep thinking, I keep going back to Dolby Vision and game related functionality, and that's one place mm-hmm. where things have gotten better over the years with every firmware update. Right. Or quirks, quirks I've had in specific scenarios with a particular product that are suddenly addressed or fixed with that firmware update. I would recommend leaving your auto update feature on on your TV and your AVR just for simplicity's sake. But if you're not willing to do that and to leave it just constantly connected, at least do it once in a while. Put it in the calendar for maybe once a year or whatever. Just briefly connect the TV to the internet, run the firmware updates, see if there are any there, and then go ahead and log that TV or AVR right back out or disconnect it from the internet again. And this would also apply to even things like disc players or game consoles. It's like... if You think about a game console, there's no way you're not going to connect that to the internet, uh, considering all the features and functionality related to either the where you get your software or what features or what patches are available for certain things. Uh, A lot of these products are works in progress. And uh, Mm -hmm. I I don't think you should be fearing a firmware update. I can't think of a time where I've seen an AVR or a TV receive a firmware update that crippled it in some way or took something away that was there previously. I just don't well, see I that as the case.
0: James pointed out that that service menu features disappearing from the from LG's, but I mean in the vast majority of cases you are going to one, I mean in most things we don't get enough firmware updates, but usually they're there to repair or improve uh, or secure, and I, for, the, for most people, I think it's perfectly acceptable. Would you, you know, would you go in in and double check all of your calibration settings or all of your settings? I mean, I part of me would take pictures of them just in case it all gets wiped out in the firmware upgrade. But generally speaking, I have yet to run into an AVR update or a television update that blanked all of my settings.
1: Same here. So, I haven't experienced yeah. that, and that is one complaint I do have with. LG televisions in particular, and I'll even say it for Sony's and others that I work on, I often do calibrations that will write directly to the TV's uh, internal firmware, or, or it'll write a lookup table directly to the TV itself. And I have no way of backing that up, so to speak. Or, or I think there right. should be a method where you could plug a thumb drive or something similar into the TV and then have it simply save all your settings all your calibration files and everything directly to that thumb drive so that if you ever wanted to factory reset the TV for whatever reason you could then reapply those settings or that that calibration file back to the TV in a very easy manner that is currently not available but in terms of losing a feature or having a calibration go away I haven't experienced that yet on any particular display with any particular firmware I'm not saying it's not possible but it's just right. not something I'm, I'm that concerned about. And I am more concerned about making sure I have a bug-free experience or if there's something related to an HDMI port or a feature in the TV that wasn't fully fleshed out when it first shipped, I would like that fixed. And if they're providing a software update to fix that, so be it. And again, for that news story that went around regarding... And it's true, actually, as far as I can tell, with LG's 2023 OLEDs, they are reducing some of the functionality within the service menu, which is a place that most people have no business being in to begin with. And (laughs) it's just like a non-issue for most of us. I will say, I have gone into LG's service menus to specifically disable those features for specific clients who had this need in a pro environment, Where it's like, this TV, absolutely, the picture cannot change no matter what we do to it. Uh, Right. And I understand that. But for most users, that's just not needed or the case. It's a non-issue for me and for most people. Keep that in mind. Also, I am actually going to ping LG. I would like to know, because they are claiming that they are still allowing... Those specific menu functions that are no longer readily available within the service menu are still available for pro environments and pro users uh, within, say, like post production houses or video editors who are using these displays in pro environments to be able to still do that particular tweak in terms of minimizing the auto dimming functions uh, for static content the things that are basically protecting the screen from burn-in potentially uh they could enable some oddities if you're using these in a pro environment with static imagery on the screen for long periods of time if that's still available i'm like okay how i've got the service remote for an lg tv hmm anyway that's something i currently don't know the answer to yet and i will look into that and get back to you in terms of uh while it may not be in the service menu, there's clearly some other way of doing it, and uh, I haven't seen that detailed yet, and that is something I am uh, very curious about
0: and would like to know more about, just in case. Evan emailed to ask at avxl.com. He says, I'm a big fan of color-coded cables. A lot of my devices, smart things, switch router, Xbox, etc., are white. I'm having a hell of a time finding white HDMI 2.1 cables. Short answer, you're probably not going to. Longer answer, you got some options. Two. Actually, <laughs> if you're not doing the 8K, 60, or 4K, 120, or even if you are, you can certainly try something like Monoprice's 4K high-speed HDMI cable. Um, that's uh, Monoprice's 4026, or the Monoprice 4K certified premium high-speed HDMI cable, which have shinier and slightly more svelte plugs. The, uh, that's uh, Model 15427 on Monoprice. So the... 4026, it's available in blue, orange, purple, red, yellow, and of course black, depending on what length you're looking for. The uh, 4K certified cables are available in black and white. Um, The vast majority of HDMI 2.1 cables, especially certified ones with the HDMI cable certification hologram kind of thing going on, they're going to be black because there's just not a huge demand for Ethernet-style cable color coding. Uh, It's expensive to maintain additional inventory. And expense is probably something a lot of these manufacturers don't want to deal with, especially in our era of post-COVID inventory uh, supply chain issues, right? Related note, I was highly amused that when I was searching around for this, uh, Target has a lot of listings for a rainbow of HDMI cable colors. Uh, most oh, cool. of them are actually the, the monoprice uh, 4K high-speed cable I mentioned. Some of them uh, are not monoprice uh, and are from cable manufacturers I might be leery of because, frankly, I've never heard of them. And if they're not certified and I've never heard of them, I am nervous about that, uh, especially if they're expensive. Target's got a great return program, so it's not an issue. If you got a good source of HDMI cables and colors other than black, do us a favor. Email ask at avxl.com or tweet us because we're curious. And hopefully, you know, give it a shot, Evan. One of these cables should take care of you and give you the aesthetically pleasing cable environment that you're looking for.
1: I work in dark environments quite a bit, and I am prone to buying white cables just to make them a little easier to see when they're on the ground, particularly networking cables. My yeah. my main fiber HDMI cable happens to be a kind of a silver uh, with a woven sheath around it. So it's not exactly white, but it's not black. And I, I really, yeah, considering the trip <laughs> hazard of, of a typical calibration setup, it's uh, <laughs> It's nice to have colors that just don't disappear into the background, so to speak, and are very obvious in case somebody has to move around in the room in a pitch black environment or a very dark room
0: environment, for sure. Taking into these, the, uh, the 4K certified premium high-speed HDMI cable, the longest version of that they have in white is 25 feet. And for the 4K high-speed HDMI cable, the one that's not certified and a little bit less expensive as a result, the longest version of that they have in white is ten feet, so and a limit of twenty per customer. Rob, hey now, <laughs> in case you were thinking about hoarding them, you gotta have more than one. So, gotta have more than one. My goodness, uh, I am still in Ted Lasso, Succession, and Marvelous Mrs. Maisel mode uh, in 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 the twenty twenty three spring of extraordinary television. Uh, I've said it before, i say it again, the Criterion channel is awesome. That's the Criterion's uh, streaming service. I was watching The Third Man with the Kids on movie night this week. It looked extraordinary, which is everything I expect from Criterion and classic movies. And uh, yeah, good stuff. Good, good stuff.
1: I am playing around with, well, playing around, quote unquote, with a new security <laughs> camera for the business I help run with my club. This is a camera that looks over a large piece of property that extends into part of a park system uh, where it's nice just to keep an eye not only on the back of our property, but looking into the park system's property as they appreciate us keeping an eye on their stuff as well. Mm -hmm. This happens to be a Samsung camera and in their Hanwha Techwint division, this is the XMP6400R. This baby, what makes it so expensive is the fact that it has a 40x optical zoom. It is just a 1080p camera. It is a infrared oh, pen, a lot of zoom. tilt zoom. But yeah, the 40x optic is one of the highest you're going to find on any particular camera. Often, I will be looking at objects up to 1,000 feet away with this particular camera. And I can read a license plate at that distance, which is fantastic. It does have infrared illumination. I don't use that as much because it is in that just generally will attract insects as soon as you turn it on. They all start flying (laughs) toward the light. Uh, This does. (laughs) (laughs) This also supports uh, a pretty interesting, uh, some advanced video analytics in terms of having quote unquote AI built in to help identify human-shaped figures and vehicles, a little bit more than, say, the wildlife or a, a waving piece of plant material or something in the video picture. As video detection on these type of cameras Motion detection is often used to minimize how much you're recording and to only basically record what you need to record. This adds a little bit to that in terms of having that that built in for specifically finding people and vehicles, in, in essence, within the scene that it's looking at. It also has options for doing audio detection and classification built in with an optional box. I don't really need that feature, so I'm not dealing with that too much. It also has gyroscopic image stabilization, which is great because this is on a pole in a windy environment near the coastline. And in high wind environments, it can add a little vibration to it. And instead of doing that electronically within a picture, uh, this is actually using gyroscopes to use the built-in functionality of the camera itself to help stabilize that picture and keep everything looking Really, really good. And, of course, it's a POE camera, so I'm running uh, the voltage out to it over uh, about 150, 200 feet over over category outdoor-rated cable. And, anyway, I'll be uh, setting that up the next couple weeks. I need to order a new bracket. Uh, this is a camera I can't use an existing bracket on, so I'm going to go get the one specifically made for it. And I will uh, be up on the ladder replacing a... A camera that has since failed on me, Uh, not a Samsung or Hanwha Techwin camera, but uh, another brand that I I am not dealing with anymore because of the poor customer support. Uh, Basically, when something went wrong with this camera, uh, I contacted the dealer and they're like, oh, and you had to contact the dealer. There was no direct RMA with the company I was dealing with. And the company that sold it to me was not interested in trying to fix it in any way, shape or form. Whereas, I will say with Samsung cameras or Hanwha Techwin, they have a local repair shop for RMA. The first thing they always did was ask me what the serial number was and the date of purchase to see if it was still covered under warranty. Turnaround times were usually a couple of days for any repairs. And for me and someone who deals with a lot of these type of cameras, that's just nice. It's just the way I want it to be. And um, I'm sticking with that brand for the time being. But yeah. when I get this set up, I'll be sure to share a couple of pictures of what a 40x zoom can do for you in terms of a, a wide environment. But holy cow, that's uh, I'm using I think a 25 or a 30x optical right now. That's already pretty impressive. So the extra 40x is going to be a a pretty uh, a nice little bump in performance, so to speak. And it happens to be. This camera in particular is located within eyesight of a particular airport that happens to be nearby, a major international airport. And it's kind of cool just to look around their facility with this camera as well. (laughs) So anyway, and there's a golf course nearby. So I can also make fun of the golfers who are who are (laughs) mulliganing their way out of all the pain and suffering that they may be experiencing. Anyway, it's a pretty impressive piece of kit. That particular camera is about twenty five hundred bucks. So it's it's not the everyday purchase for you know a, 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 it's serving a specific function and uh something I'm pleased as punch I get a chance to you actually, get excited
0: I mean, about your cameras
1: especially when they're <laughs> this expensive and with this kind of functionality built in yeah I'll be running it twenty four seven and hopefully this thing will last for years and years and years and I'll be sure to report if that it would does be nice not if that is not the case but anyway I that'll be a, that'll be my future. Future project, being up on a ladder, being very careful, making sure
0: not to uh, injure myself. (laughs) We're at that age where we get, you know, serious about OSHA-level safety on our ladder expeditions. You are not kidding. (laughs) I am very careful. Taking my time, making sure it's set up right. Oh, my goodness. If you'd like to tweet your favorite ladder safety tips, or if you have a question about audio or video, do us a favor. Email us at avxl.com or tweet at Robert Herron, at Patrick Norton, or at avxl. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Patrick Norton. I am Robert Heron. We'll catch you next time on AVXL.